We're working through this series, Compelled, which is looking at the letter of Peter to a whole series of churches. And the primary drive of the letter really is coming to terms with how to live in the world that they were in. In a lot of ways, it is the enduring message of Christian faith. Every age, every situation brings different challenges. There are different contexts. There are different questions. There are different trials. And yet the consistent issue for believers in Jesus is how do we live in the world that we now live in? I'd say that really carefully. How do we live in the world that we now live in? That's an important question because one of the tendencies, one of the things that we've got to be aware of is that if we're, involved, if we're kind of students of the Bible, if we, we want to dig into some really good writing, we, we tend to go back and we read some great authors, and that is fantastic, that is good stuff. But one of the dangers that we can fall into when we do that is that by going back and reading, we tend to read um, concerns, explanations, issues which are contained within the world that existed then. Now, some things, of course, are the same. And underneath is the consistent issue of the human condition. But we live in today's world. And therefore, for us, the issue is how do we live in today's world as believers in Jesus? How do we take this letter, which was written so long ago, which was written to a different situation, how do we bring it and how do we think about living today? We're going to be looking at just a few verses, 13 uh, through to 19, uh, this afternoon. One of the things that I want us to think about Firstly, is the kind, of, uh, the kind of world that we now do live in. You know, one of the fascinating things uh, I think I can see in, in our gaming world particularly is this insatiable desire to enter into different worlds. Uh, if you, a whole load of you are thinking, I don't even understand what he's talking about. Uh, but if you're into gaming, one of the things that, uh, when I'm talking gaming, I'm talking like the computer game type, console game stuff, where we enter into that world and we, we learn and we work out how to, how to engage in that world. It's a fact, <laughs> I've not played it. You know, the last time, in fact, the last time I think I played any computer game was when Tim was about six and he battered me at Mario Kart. And uh, from there on, I've not even played any game since, so I'm not exactly coming from a game aficionado point of view. But I was watching something on TV this past week, uh, and there's a game that's just been re released called Sunset Overdrive. Some of you might have seen it. Sunset Overdrive is a game where you enter into this world where the world has been taken over by mutants who have drunk from this can of energy drink. <laughs> and suddenly the world is filled with all of these once human beings who have now 
been consumed by energy drinks where they've become these kind of mutant, dangerous beings. It's a bit like escape on a Saturday night. (laughs) Who now you're in this situation where you've got to fight off all of these, these beings. And one of the things that you've got to do is you've got to enter into, you've got to understand that world. Fascinating. If you're not a gamer, which many of you probably aren't, there are many, many other ways where we we desire to enter into other worlds and enter into an understanding of that world. Maybe you enter into another world when you pick up a novel and you kind of hide away from this world and you just immerse yourself in that world, a world which is filled with perhaps intrigue uh, and criminal cases and you're trying to work out in that world who's done it. Um, You might enter into another world of love and romance and all of that stuff. But we have this insatiable desire to enter into worlds and to understand. One of the things that that raises a question for me is, what about the world that we do live in? What about a desire? What about a desperate desire in our being to enter into this real world and understand it? Enter into this world and understand how to engage with this world, how to understand it and and come to terms as those who believe in Jesus, how should I live in this world? We spend so much time in all sorts of different ways, under all sorts of different disguises, escaping this world and learning how to live in those escaped worlds that we forget that the primary task is to learn how to live in this real world. Whether it's escaping on holiday, whether it's escaping in the adrenaline junkie experience of a a mountain bike ride or drugs and alcohol. We might know how to escape, but do we know how to live in the real? That's a huge question. Let's have a look at what Peter uh, has to say to us. He's already created in the early part of this chapter this perspective of who we are as believers in Jesus. Now, you might be here this afternoon and you can quite honestly say, I am not a follower and a believer of Jesus. It's great that we're able to be here. Thank you for coming along. The opportunity, I guess, is for us to, uh, as we observe maybe, to see what it means to be a follower. What does it mean? Well, what we see is that in the early part of the chapter, to be a believer in Jesus is to be somebody who's been compelled by His presence, compelled by who He is, compelled by the message of His salvation and compelled by our desperate need for Him, something which is a gift from God where we are changed. And then Peter goes on and he says, therefore, (laughs) there's that old adage, you've probably heard it a thousand times, whenever there is a therefore, ask what it's there for. 
therefore, he says. In other words, in the light of your experience of Jesus, therefore, do this. It's like the turning point. It's the moment that says, because you are this, therefore, do this. It's a moment which converts that understanding to living. Do you see the difference? You see the shift that he's taking us on. He's saying, you might understand this. I'm desperately concerned that we all come to the point of understanding this, understanding who Jesus is, understanding the reality of salvation. But if it's just an understanding, we never get past the therefore. We never move to the point of saying, how is it going to challenge and affect my life day to day? The first thing that he says is, therefore, have sober awareness. Have sober awareness. Look at what he says. Therefore, with, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Therefore, he's saying, therefore, have sober minds. Be alert, because what's in front of you is the return of Jesus. That's, that's basically what he's saying to us. Sober-mindedness. We can get kind of a bit confused by that. We can think of all sorts of things. The, the best analogy I think I can, I can re- try and relate it to us is this. Being sober-minded and being fully alert is that really clear mindset which is representative of what it means to be carefully driving your car through a city. You know what it's like. You're in this city that you don't know. You've got this sat-nav that's talking to you that doesn't seem to relate to anything that's in front of you. You've got cars all around you that clearly know exactly where they're going, which is generally crossing your path, and your task is to be really clear, to be really alert, to be really conscious. What are you doing? You're listening to what's being said. You're relating to what's appearing on the signs. You're watching the road ahead of you. You're watching for cars on each side. You are sober and you are alert because you are in a situation which demands that you are fully conscious of what is going on around you. Why? Because your task is to get from where you are to a destination that is planned. You know where you're heading for, Unless you're sober and alert on that journey, you're going to get smashed into, you're going to take a wrong turn, you're going to wander off and you're going to end up in la-la land and disappear somewhere that you never planned to be. Therefore, if you want to get to where you are headed, be sober and alert while you are driving. Now let's relate that to life. To relate that to what, Paul, uh, what Peter is saying here. He's saying, therefore, in the light of your calling by Jesus on your life, live your life day to day, day to day, with an awareness of what is going on around you, with a clear consciousness, 
with a sober mind which is fully alert and sensitive to the opportunities and the threats which are going on in your world, in my world, day to day. He's encouraging us to say, don't just float through life. Don't just kind of be taken up. You know, you're driving along. Do you know what? This is a really nice roundabout. I love this roundabout. It's got this great monument in the middle. So I'll just, I'll just drive around it. And I'll drive around it. And I'll drive around it. Because I love this roundabout. That does not make sense, does it? We would never do that. Well, <laughs> unless we're trying to work out which exit to get off. And we might go around a couple of times. But we would never be compelled and taken up with a roundabout. It's just a roundabout. And yet, how often in our lives, day to day, are we taken up with something which in relative terms is insignificant, and yet it consumes us, we're filled with it, we're taken up with this little bypath in our journey without, and losing sight of the end destination, losing sight of the reality of the true journey that we are really on. And to avoid that, we've got to be compelled in our thinking. We've got to be clear in our thinking. We've got to be alert and sober-minded. Half past four this morning, England kicked off against Australia in the Four Nations Rugby League. And uh, it was great to see them come so close to beating the Aussies. In fact... I reckon in the last minute of the game, if it was a Super League game, England would have scored a try. Can you imagine one of those guys taking up the ball and losing sight of the try line and becoming so taken up by the tackles that were raining in on him that he lost sight of the objective? It doesn't happen, does it? It Well, it's... <laughs> It shouldn't happen. You don't lose sight of the objective. The tackles might come in. You might get battered. You might get hit. That's that's Peter's context that he's writing to these believers. He's writing to believers who are at this point in time experiencing the beginnings of real persecution, of real challenge. There is a danger that the hits that we take become the big issue. That doesn't mean that they're not hits. They are hits. They're real hits. They knock us over. They knock us back. They hurt. But if they become everything, we've lost sight of the eternal tri-line. We've lost sight of the end goal. And Peter is writing to believers and he's saying... Just be alert, be fully sober, set your hope on the grace. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Tuck that one away, keep thinking about that one. Everything that we've received in Jesus. Keep your mind on that, what we've received in Jesus and the idea that He is returning again. And then we can put the hits 
into perspective. So be sober, uh, live your life with sober awareness. The second thing that he encourages these believers to live is with holy difference. H-O-L-Y, holy difference. That difference is wholly different, W-H-O-L-L-Y. It is wholly different, and it is holy in its being. Look at what he says. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Sounds very kind of super spiritual, that, doesn't it? Sounds so unachievable. So kind of disconnected. Let's all be holy and wear kind of white robes and have halos shining around our heads and walk around with kind of gooey, fake smiles. Is that holiness? Is that what he's talking about? Or is there something much, much more grounded, much more gritty, and much more real? Obedient children is his starting point for talking about holiness. Do you see that? He starts talking about holiness with the idea of being obedient children. One of the things that he is keen for these believers to understand is the compelling power of the message of Jesus. He's already described Jesus previously as Lord, Lord of the lives of the people who have been compelled by his message in their hearts. In other words, they are now living with a new leadership or lordship or governance in their lives. Previously, he says, you had evil desires when you were ignorant. In other words, there was a time when you didn't have these kind of desires because you were ignorant. Ignorant of what? Ignorant of Jesus. Ignorant of Jesus as Lord. Ignorant of who he was. You didn't know about it. You know, we kind of use the word ignorance and we kind of think you're just an ignorant person. He's actually saying there was a time when you you just didn't know about this. And when you didn't know, you lived with evil desires. What does that look like? Why does that shift take place? What is at the very heart of living as an obedient child before Jesus? Quite simply, it's this. It's living with the self stripped back and living with the other in place. The other, firstly, is the other being Jesus as Lord. And then the second is the other being those outside of me. The living with my self-centeredness stripped away. There's a really simple picture 
that used to be uh, quite prevalent in, in understanding and coming to terms with this, which is the idea of who is the king of your being? Who is on the throne of your being? The idea, of course, is that by nature, I am on the throne of me. I am on the throne of me. I might dress it up in all sorts of niceties. I might dress it up in in all sorts of appearances. But by nature, when the chips are down, unless God is working in me with some sort of pervasive grace which flows out into the whole of the world, outside of that, by nature, I am a self-centered, self-obsessed, self-determining person, where the things that I will do are driven by my objectives for me. I, I might extend that out to me and us, and the us, of course, has greater and greater circles, so it might be the us of me and my significant other, and then me and my significant other and associated family members, and then us and my tribe, and then us and my nation, and whatever it might be. But at the very focus of our being is a desire and a concern where we and our our joy, our happiness, everything that is motivating us is at the center of our decisions. Now, if Jesus is replaced, (laughs) then I've gone. My self-centeredness has disappeared. It doesn't go, of course, completely. But at the center is my desire to now conform to His model of living, to live obediently to Him, just as He lived obediently when He was in this world. Do you see the pattern that Jesus becomes? He lived obediently. That's one of the great messages of Jesus' life. He didn't come and, and, and live as kind of Lord of this world when He was living present. He was, but He lived obediently to His Father. That's one of the things that is repeated again and again, particularly in the Gospel of John. Go and look it up. See how many times Jesus is described as being obedient. He comes and He lives in this world, and the appropriate way to live in this world is obedient to His Father in heaven. And now He's saying, because you are now related in my family, I am your Lord of your life, live obedient to me. Therefore, your uh, self-aggrandizement, your self-strategy is now inferior to living a life conforming to me. And therefore, what does that look like? It looks like holiness. What does holiness mean? You know, one of the things that's holy in the Bible is a shovel. Really. In the Old Testament, in the temple, 
There is a shovel, which is holy. How can a, how can a shovel be holy? You kind of think that it's an inanimate object, and yet it's described as holy. Why? Because it's not just any old shovel. It's a shovel with a purpose. It's a shovel with the purpose of making sure that the temple fires are burning. It's a shovel which is set aside for a particular task of service. That's what a, sh- that's what a holy shovel is. You know, it, it's, I reckon that that holy shovel probably was covered in kind of dirty carbon in probably the same way as every other shovel is, but it is set aside in its purpose. It's a holy, separated shovel. In other words, you don't take that shovel and you don't, don't go and dig in the garden with it and chuck it in the shed because it is set aside. It is separated Have you ever thought, have we ever thought of the implications of what it means to live in this world today as set aside? Now, there is a real danger when we talk about being set aside. And the danger that we think about when we talk about being set aside is well, two things actually. First thing is it can have a tendency where we can become really aloof and kind of really distant. And my first answer to that, and it's a really straightforward answer to that, is quite simply this. Was Jesus that? Was Jesus the aloof, distant one? Or was he the one who was in the nitty-gritty reality of life with everybody? He was exactly that, wasn't he? He was the kind of person that was loved by the people who were kicked out of society, who were kind of ostracized from the the nice people of society. That's where he was. He was accused of being a drunkard because he spent time with people who were struggling with alcohol. You, You know, we kind of just stop. Jesus spent time with people who were struggling with alcohol addictions because he was described as being a drunkard. Of course, he wasn't. But he was connected with the reality of life today in that day. He was holy. He was set aside. Somebody's put it like this. I read this this week. thought it was really helpful. It's easy for us to get locked into Christian bubbles and soon lose contact with those who desperately need to know the good news. And it's easy to mistake sanctification, or the work of holiness, to mean separate from the world. It's easy to mistake sanctification to mean separate from the world instead of separated for God's work in the world. See the difference? It's easy for us to think that being holy is being separated from the world. And that is just so wrong. Being separated and holy means that we are separated to do God's work in the world. Jesus said, you've got to be salt. You've got to be light. 
Don't hide it under a jar, that light. You are called to be recognizably connected with this world. Christians are truly called to move toward need. I found this really personally very challenging. We are called to work and to move toward need and to be in the middle of brokenness. We're not of the world, but we're sent into it. You know, as I read that, I thought, wow. It is so easy to actually want to be a different kind of holiness. A holiness which is just not representative whatsoever of what the Bible calls us to be. It's so easy to, be want, to want to be disconnected rather than to move towards need and brokenness. I think things like tiny little opportunities to to show care with the issues of Ebola and the issues of Samaritan's Purse, that they're just little, they're as much nudges to us, reminders to us to move towards brokenness, to be those who are exhibiting God's work in this world. So firstly, sober awareness, secondly, holy difference, Thirdly and finally, fearful thankfulness. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time, live your life, in other words. Live the whole of your life, the time that you've got, as foreigners. Here, in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Let's call, uh, just deal with that middle bit. It's not silver or gold passed down by your ancestors. It's not that whole pattern of being a Jewish kind of ancestry line. It's about Jesus and what he's done and how he's engaged with you. But the outcome of that is that you should live with reverent fear. And straight away we go, not sure about that word fear. Don't like the word living fearfully before God. Let me give you an example. It was sold, I think, in 2013. Um, It was the Dassau Goblet, sold in Bonhams Auction House for 277 thousand pounds. It is a Silesian engraved goblet. It looks incredible. Over a quarter of a million pounds worth of 1700s glass. I want you to imagine that somebody gives you this object and says with their final breath, I want you to travel across the world and take this to the person that I love the most. So what is it? 
It's a quarter of a million pounds worth of glass. Uh, What does that do to us? There is a sense in which an appropriate response to that is that we're fearful, aren't we? We're fearful that, you know, I don't want to drop this. It's a precious thing. It's something which means so much to the person that I love and that person loves that person and therefore my connectedness with them means that I am desperate to want to do the right thing for that person on the other side of the world and I am holding the most precious thing. quarter of a million pounds worth of glass. That is just nothing compared with what it means to be the bearers of the mark of the blood of Jesus. That is a precious thing. And what's more, we are carrying that mark before the God of all of the universe who speaks galaxies into being, who is astoundingly beyond our our first ability to imagine what He is like. Who could turn and look at us and snuff us out in an instant with his glory and power? And he says, Come unto me, and I will be your father. I will be the one who loves you and live before me. And he says, I grant you this incredible gift of being the bearers of the mark of the blood of my Son. That is the most precious thing that I have to give to you, to carry in this world. It is entirely appropriate that we are filled with awe and fear. (laughs) Not a terror of God, but a kind of an awareness of what we are carrying. I am carrying, you are carrying, if you are believers in Jesus, the mark of Jesus in this world. It is more precious than anything that this world has. Don't you want to make sure that you are carrying it right? Don't I want to make sure that I am representing that mark before my Father in heaven? in a way which is right and appropriate? Don't I want to live in this world in a way which just reveals what that is? I hope so. Because our lives are lived. As he says, live out your time, the time that we've got before you die, before Jesus returns, one of those two things, live out your time as bearers of that incredible gift. It is right that we carry a reverent fear. It's right that we are in awe. It's right that we kind of should get up each morning and say, I don't know how how to carry this today, but I need your help so that I can live today 
as a bearer of that representation in this world of Jesus with my fellow family and the people of God so that we are representing you faithfully. Lord, help me to do it. Help me to live thinking right now and for the next seven days with sober-mindedness, with alertness to what's going on around me and the life that I am living in the world that I am called to today.